Uh, good morning. It's wonderful to see you all this morning and to gather. And uh, always, uh, always a surprise to find out what a Sunday morning in Louisville is going to look like in January and February. So this morning it's merely wet and a bit cool. So we'll take wet and cool over worse and uh, see it as a sign of good things to come. It is wonderful to be here with you. We are beginning this morning our study in Titus, and uh, so it will not be long, but I think it will be richly rewarding. And so let's pray, and then we will uh, jump into Titus. Father, we come before you thankful for this opportunity to turn to your word on this the Lord's day, and we pray the Lord's blessing as we uh, look to this crucial New Testament book whereby Christ instructs his church. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So we speak of First and Second Timothy and Titus as the pastoral epistles. Now that is because, just as we speak of the Old Testament, the shortest division is the Law and the Prophets. And uh, then we also in the Old Testament have come to speak of wisdom literature and even the major prophets and the minor prophets, which are not a matter of stature, but merely of the length of the book. In the New Testament, we clearly speak of the Gospels and we speak of the epistles. And among the epistles are those that in the 17th and 18th century began to be known as the pastoral epistles. Now, part of that is the fact that with the translation of the Scripture as one of the achievements of the Reformation, people needed to know how to designate certain texts of Scripture. Now, again, the easiest thing, Old and New Testament. The next easiest thing, the book and the reference. But clearly, there was an understanding that there are certain characteristics that set certain of these writings apart from other writings. Most importantly, the distinction between the Gospels and the Epistles And then, of course, you have the historical, uh, such as in the book of Acts, which are continuing, in one sense, the historical focus of the four Gospels. But uh, among the epistles, the letters, these three letters uh, stand out, number one, because they are addressed to pastors. And so that's how they got the name. It's not that they're just pastoral as an adjective or a modifier, as in having a pastoral approach. They're written to pastors. Timothy and Titus are the recipients of these letters for the churches. And uh, so they are, as we shall see, apostolic in coming from Paul, pastoral in being applied uh, to and by Paul and Timothy. Now, as we're going to see a closer look at the pastoral epistles and at the recipients at uh, Timothy and Titus, well, this is really something. Because as we look at Timothy and Titus, and we just look at who they are and the responsibilities they fulfill, it's an amazing thing that all of a sudden we recognize there is a growing apostolic understanding in the New Testament as referenced even by the two names, Timothy and Titus. And more about that as we look to the text itself. Titus very short book. And by the way, you might say, well, there's another Pauline epistle that is in this immediate canonical category, and that would be Philemon. But Philemon is not addressed as a pastor. 
Its content is not pastoral. That's why it's not included with First and Second Timothy and Titus among the pastoral epistles. Okay, so let's look at the text. Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching which I have been entrusted, with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. So as is so often the case, I need to ask a quick question. Is it dark right here where I am? Is there, it's not, well, that's how you find out you're losing it. All right. There's a biblical instruction about that, yes. I think that might actually... Whoops. Might be more complicated than I thought. Ah, thank you. Here we go. This is... You just slide into these questions. Am I making sense? Are you talking in normal volume? (laughs) Okay, here we go. The... uh, The shape of the epistle, the form of the letter, this kind of formal letter in the ancient world following Greco-Roman conventions begins with identifying the sender. And by the way, that's actually helpful. I mean, how our business letters got to be exactly inverted is an interesting question, but largely solved by letterhead. So that's how in the business world they solved it. We'll We'll just put a an identifier at the top of the letter and then dear you and then sign it at the end. But if you've got to go through an entire letter not knowing from whom it is uh, coming, you're at a significant disadvantage in understanding. In the ancient world, you begin with the letter writer. And this is what's interesting. So in the epistolatory form of the ancient world, you would find this kind of statement. What makes these unique is not only the content, but the length. Paul's opening statements are longer uh, than would have been common. And it's because Paul can't wait to preach. He preaches in his greeting. And uh, I find this in Titus most interesting when when you consider particularly verse 2. Again, where Paul just goes on saying that he had written, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life. And then he goes on speaking of God having promised us and at the right time bringing it to pass. Um, Now, so what would the alternative be? Well, if you were writing an imperial or a royal letter or uh, even a military letter following the conventions of the time, then you would draw attention to yourself and to your accolades. And uh, you see this even in the ancient world as reflected in some of the communications sent by someone like Alexander the Great. He identifies himself by just how great he sees himself to be. Uh, The Apostle Paul identifies himself And uh, the first thing that he is insistent to do is to identify his authority. So this is something we need to watch very carefully. You are not surprised by this because this is characteristically Pauline. Paul begins by saying, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. 
Now, he begins by saying, first of all, that he's entirely under the direction of Christ. He's a, sl- a servant. The, the, the word here is doulos. It could just as well be translated slave. He is Christ's servant. He's Christ's slave. His will is to do only the will of his master. It is his master's will that he write this letter, and he writes it as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, one did not volunteer to be an apostle. One did not... Uh, one did not expect to be an apostle. You don't apply for the job. It is misunderstood throughout most, I think, of Christianity. And yet it's indispensable. So we speak about the earliest period of the church, indeed the period pre the canon of Scripture, as apostolic, because the authority in the church was apostolic. Now, it was the Word of God mediated through the apostles, but the important issue here is that it was mediated through the apostles. In the New Testament, the apostles are, by definition, just the language means those who are sent. I find in speaking of the apostles, the easiest way to explain them is to say that there are two roughly analogous offices in the Bible. In the Old Testament, the prophets. In the New Testament, the apostles. Now, that comparison accomplishes a couple of things for us. Because first of all, we often hear of apostolic authority, and indeed the apostles had that authority in the church. They represented Christ in the church in a way that is not true now for reasons we'll remind ourselves of. But, uh, But their first responsibility was to be conduits of divine revelation. That is exactly what characterized the apostles in the Old Testament. They were those through whom God revealed. Uh, They were not only foretellers, they were also conduits of revelation. Uh, When they spoke, they said, thus saith the Lord. The apostles are in a very similar situation. The apostles are those through whom the Holy Spirit, and indeed the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking to the church. Like with the prophets, not every word they said was divine revelation. But their orations and their writings under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit are the very revelation of God. Similarly, what Paul said to someone along the way as he was traveling in his missionary journeys, every word was not considered divine revelation. But when he wrote to the churches... And when he gave apostolic instruction, it was received as being none other than divine revelation. Now, this turns out to be really, really important when you consider a passage like uh, in in Ephesians chapter 2, where we are told that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Well, the point there is revelation. That's that's on on the authority of God's spoken word. God's word spoken through the prophets and the apostles. So we do speak in church history of the apostolic age. And we believe that the transition from the apostolic age to our own age is the transition from the living revelatory office of the apostle to the scriptures as we have them now in the church. So this means that now that we have the scriptures... 
there are no more apostles. And this is something of which there was unanimity in the early church. The apostles pass from the scene because the characteristics of the apostles as found in the New Testament is that they had to have had a personal knowledge of Christ. Now remember for the apostle Paul, this came post, in terms of a relationship, post the uh, resurrection and ascension of Jesus when Jesus appeared to him. By the way, that points out something else. That points out that the nature of Christ's appearance to Paul was so well attested in the early church that Paul was considered not only the apostle, but the chief of the apostles when he had not been with Christ, as were the other apostles during his earthly ministry. Now, that's a pretty remarkable thing. A little subset of understanding here, just remember, Paul was the chief enemy of Christianity and is transformed into the great apostle. And uh, the early church, we can only surmise, uh, with witnesses who were with Paul at the time and with others who were with Paul immediately thereafter, they were absolutely convinced that nothing other had happened than that Christ had appeared to Paul and called him to be his, his apostle, just exactly uh, as is recorded in the book of Acts. So Paul is an apostle. Now, again, this isn't something that Paul, so far as we know, um, and, and actually we, we know this very well, And this doesn't include everything Paul wrote. Now, let me give you an example. Everything Paul wrote came with apostolic authority, but not everything came as a revelation that was continued in Scripture. For example, Titus is involved in the Corinthian correspondence between what we believe was uh, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And by the way, we think there was a letter before 1st Corinthians that Paul mentions. So, There may be four letters to Corinth. Titus was actively involved in uh, ministry in Corinth between the book we know as 1 Corinthians, when the the Corinthians would receive that, and when Paul sent them what was known as his hard letter. Now, the hard letter is not 2 Corinthians, and it's not 1 Corinthians because of the content that Paul references. Uh, But that's just to say there were probably four letters to the Corinthian church by Paul that we can just figure out from New Testament internal evidence. But we have two. We know is first and second. And so you'll notice that when Paul begins the letter this way, he is invoking his apostolic authority. Now, the apostolic authority meant something else. So um, just in a, a weird matter of interest... I, uh, I, I, I got interested in asking a question about the derivation of the word sheriff. And uh, it, it had a, a literary, my curiosity was grounded in a literary context. And I said, okay, I need to find this out. Does it mean the same thing here that it means there? And the answer was yes and no. Usually that's the way it works out. But the point of being a sheriff was this. Every sheriff in Britain was local. And so 
the point of being a sheriff is that if you were a sheriff or you were the high sheriff over a certain jurisdiction in ancient England, you had massive power in that jurisdiction. The point is you step out of that jurisdiction, you're nobody. So sheriffs had to basically stay within their own territory <laughs> because they had massive authority in that territory, but the moment they stepped out of that territory, you're nothing. So I think that's interesting. Interesting is a contrast to an apostle. The apostle's authority was plenary and it was universal. But when you invoke that authority, you do it exactly the way the Apostle Paul does here. And again, look at Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. So Paul is himself invoking his apostolic authority. This is not just a letter from Paul. This is not just Paul checking up to see how they're doing and letting them know he's been praying for them. This is Paul in the context of what we know was a rather intense theological controversy and certainly an ongoing early church phenomenon of theological confusion and the embryonic uh, development of the church. Paul is, from the beginning, invoking his apostolic authority, and he is writing to Titus. Now, that raises another issue. If he was merely writing to Titus, why do we have it? If this is just to Titus, or if First and Second Timothy were just to Timothy, why do we have them? Well, that goes back to why we call these the pastoral epistles. They are given to Titus, and they are given to Timothy for the pastoral ministry of the church everywhere. And that becomes very clear. The, the exhortations given to Timothy and to Paul are not just to Timothy and to Paul. And that is clear, as we shall see, within the letters. This is to be shared with others. Indeed, it's to be shared with the whole church. It's to be shared with the churches in order that the churches would understand the ministry and the minister and the importance of this apostolic pastoral exhortation. Well, we have Titus, who is he? We do not know much about him. He appears multiple times in the Pauline correspondence, and as I say, in particular, in the Corinthian correspondence. He is analogous to Timothy. So this is good for us to think about because I think we think more about Timothy than Titus, uh, maybe because, uh, given the circumstances, there are these two letters to uh, Timothy and Paul writes, and, and we're, we're, we note this, we're, we're very vulnerable to this, and that's a good thing. God made us this way. We're very vulnerable to being uh, drawn into a very intense relationship. That, that's the way it works in literature. It works in the Bible. Uh, there is much we are told, including in the book of Acts, about the relationship between Paul and Timothy, like a father and a son. And I can remember even as a year, very young Christian, as a boy, reading about Paul and Timothy and feeling, just, not just learning and thinking, but feeling Paul and Timothy and the, the relationship uh, between them. Paul writes with such affection for Timothy. He writes uh, at times uh, to uh, give him a bit of backbone. Uh, he writes to Timothy as a young man 
and clearly uh, identifies himself as uh, Timothy's spiritual father, even as Timothy identified as Paul's spiritual son. Titus is more neglected because we just don't know as much about him. We don't know about his mother and his grandmother because there's not a Jewish rootage here. He's Greek. He's Gentile. And so this tells us something, however, so that it tells us that the Apostle Paul, led by the Holy Spirit, looking for, let's just say in this case, two young men who are going to be decisive for the pastoral ministry of the Christian church. He is drawn to Timothy and to Titus. Now, Timothy and Titus are perhaps about the same age. Titus may be a bit older. He's not spoken of in the same youthful language with the same intensity, so we, 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 we don't know. We do know this. Titus had Paul's confidence. And uh, Titus was the apostolic delegate. He was the one who was sent. Titus was both a, uh, a communicator on behalf of Paul, and he was a fixer. In other words, he was sent to fix a problem. Now, Paul doesn't just send Timothy or Titus and say, hey, young men, go fix this problem. He says, here's the problem. Here's how it's defined. Here's what the truth is. Here's how you're going to preach it. You're going to use exactly these words. And so that too is important to us because in the apostolic ministry, it's not the apostle merely sending out pastors saying, figure this out. It's, uh, it's the apostles, in this case, Paul, the apostle, sending out Paul and Titus and saying, when you get there, here's what you're going to do. Here's what you're going to say. When this happens, this is how you're going to recognize it. This is how you're going to respond to it. It's more like military orders. And of course, everyone in the Greco-Roman Empire would have understood exactly how those work. But military orders of such theological depth and personal intensity you can feel the intensity in this. You can feel the relationship between Paul and, and uh, Titus right here in the beginning of the epistle. Paul, an apostle of God, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Well, that's jumping in the deep end of the pool. Here, those who are in Christ, and by the way, this is past, present, and future. The elect. God's predestination, God's electing act. It includes all those who would come to Christ, past, present, and future. So the elect is made up of all the redeemed. So this is not just for the redeemed where Titus personally ministers, but everywhere, wherever they are found. For the sake of the faith of God's elect. So in this case, what does faith mean? It doesn't mean the cognitive content of Christianity, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Uh, does it mean the faithfulness? The answer is yes. And, and by the way, virtually everywhere it appears like that. That's exactly what it means, both the cognitive content uh, and the faithful uh, avowal and, uh, and obedience. So, Paul tells Titus, I'm writing this letter to you for the church. So it's not, not just for you, it's to you for the church, for its faithfulness and their knowledge of the truth. There's the cognitive aspect. And it's a phrase that, again, we have to put in English punctuation marks. 
because the Greek doesn't have them in this sense. So you have to, in a passage like this, sometimes know that translators have had to put in punctuation marks to make sense in English. But one of the things you have to watch for is the potential of unnecessary commas. Uh, I'm an editor and a writer. A war between editor and writer. Well, every day for me, it comes down to semicolons. Writers love them. Editors hate them because readers are confused by them. Don't use a semicolon unless it's absolutely necessary. Instead, split it into two sentences. But, uh, it just makes it easier. But uh, commas are another area of conflict. Writers put them in. Editors take them out. Editors sometimes put them back in after they've taken them out. Sometimes you have to read it aloud to figure out if a comma is necessary. Because it, is, is this a break in the argument? Is this a separate phrase? Look at this particular verse, and you'll understand how that question comes to pass. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, or should it be, and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. The argument for the, the comma there uh, is to make very clear that this means all truth and their knowledge of the truth, period. So that you don't have someone come along later and say, well, this only means their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, as if there might be some other kind of truth. So I will tell you that the translators were right in putting the comma there. They were right. Vindicated. I'm sure, they're very thankful. Um, but we're right in understanding that all of this is just a part of Paul's unbroken argument. And it's not only that which accords with godliness, it's in hope of eternal life. And this is where Paul preaches in a way that's unusual in this kind of salutation. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. So Paul says, look, God promised salvation and God can't lie. I am writing about the fulfillment of that salvation because the age of salvation has come. He wants this declared in the churches. But the language here is uh, its majestic. He writes to this, to this pastor for the church in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. Well, when was that? When was that? This is another very important part of salvation history. Uh, you ask the average Christian, where does salvation history begin? And they have no idea where to say it begins. And the only right answer is in eternity past, in the decrees of God. When God decreed to save, the very persons identified here, the elect by means of the atonement accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ. And he promised it, and he cannot lie. Okay. Very helpful. It's very close. Just look at the beginning to 1 Timothy. Paul's salutation. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, 
Paul writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. Long by Greco-Roman standards, short by Titus standards. Look at 2 Timothy. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So you notice a lot of parallels here, but uh, Titus gets one letter, but a longer introduction. Now something else you might note is it's somewhat less personal. Somewhat. Uh, the beloved child language. Not so much present here in the same way. But then again, look at verse 4, to Titus, my true child in a common faith. So Titus too is like a son to Paul. He doesn't speak of him in exactly the same way. The circumstances by which the relationship was established were almost surely different than was the case with Timothy. But Paul is making clear here by this parallel structure that even if the language is not as intimate, the relationship is just as real. His relationship with Titus is as a son. We also noted in the beginnings to both First and Second Timothy, you had gospel exhortations, but nothing the length of what we find uh, here in the opening verses of Titus. Again, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in His Word through the preaching which I have been entrusted with by the command of God our Savior. So the Apostle Paul says, look, here, here, here's, here's my apostolic mission. I've been commanded, commissioned, as the minister of the Word to preach this gospel, the gospel that he had taught to Titus, the gospel that he had received from Christ. And it is to be ministered through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Now, there are a couple of very technical things here we need to know. We need not to look over this too quickly. Notice that Paul says here, I have been entrusted by the command with this gospel, by the command of God our Savior. So God here is identified as God our Savior. Then look at the end of verse 4, Christ Jesus our Savior. So, just thinking in a, even of Trinitarian theology here, Paul is very, very clear that the Son obediently accomplished the gospel promised by the Father before the ages had begun, and God, who cannot lie, fulfilled His promise of eternal life and the gospel in Jesus Christ our Savior. Therefore, it is right for the church to say, God is our Savior, and simultaneously to say, Christ Jesus is our Savior. And uh, here is the New Testament apostolic authority for putting those two together. And you notice Paul puts them together in such close proximity. Who is the Savior? God. Who is the Savior? Christ Jesus. No separation whatsoever in terms of intention and the gospel. 
So Paul begins by identifying himself as a servant of God, an apostle of Christ Jesus, for the sake of faith of God's elect, and their knowledge of the truth. Uh, this truth which does accord with godliness, this truth that consummates in eternal life. But Paul's reference there, not only to the fact that uh, God's elect are elect, but their need for the knowledge of the truth is crucial. The gospel always has enemies. There's always the danger of false gospels. There's always the danger of confusion. There are false teachers. And so in all three cases, first and second Timothy and in Titus, these pastoral epistles are occasioned at least in part by apostolic concern about the nature of the doctrine being taught in the churches. And at least a central portion of the responsibility of Timothy and Titus is to make certain that it is the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It is the apostolic faith. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that is being taught in the churches. Now, we also know in the background here, and this becomes absolutely crucial, in the background to all three of the pastoral epistles is one particular theological problem. And we know this from the book of Acts. We know it from the Corinthian correspondence. It's the problem of the Judaizers. Now, in a historical context, we have to admit, we can understand this would have been difficult. Uh, the transition from Judaism to Christianity, from promise to fulfillment, had to be wrenching for Jewish believers because they had for centuries been trained in obedience to the law. And obedience to the law was something that was manifested and demonstrated by an entire system of piety, all the prayers and the, all, the, all the festivals and the feasts as we just saw in Leviticus and all the details of the law. It was also for a man for a boy of Israel, it was manifested in the flesh through circumcision. The entire world, according to Jewish logic, which is based in Scripture and in the covenant, is divided between the circumcised and the uncircumcised. And so you will have the Gentiles referred to as the uncircumcised. And it's not a hygienic statement. It's a covenant statement. They are not sons of the covenant. You just look at them. They're not sons of the covenant. Look over here. These are the sons of the covenant. The Judaizers, however, weren't just concerned with circumcision. We know this, of course, from the book of Acts, most crucially. Circumcision was a symbol for everything Judaism represented. So one of the big questions for the church, given its Jewish background, is what continues and what doesn't. None of us should assume that could have been easy. I would have no idea how accurately to divide what is to continue and what is not to continue. Uh, the early church might have just settled it in every place locally in a different way. Uh, the consensus, I think, probably would have been a far more Jewish Christianity than what did emerge, which would have meant that Christianity would have remained a relatively small sect. 
But thankfully, the church had the words of Christ. You've heard it said, but I say unto you. And the apostolic teaching and the apostolic discernment, even the apostolic defense of the faith over against the Judaizers. And so we really do have all that we need to understand what continues and what does not. We also know that it is the law of Christ in the new covenant that actually it doesn't replace the law of Moses. It fulfills the law of Moses. And that's another thing we learn from the apostles and even from the words of Jesus, but particularly from the apostles, we learn not to talk about just before and after, but promise and fulfillment, not just plan A and plan B, because that is an insult to the sovereignty of God, but rather, as Paul speaks of here, promise and fulfillment. What about Paul and Timothy in this regard? Or what about Timothy and Titus in this regard? Well, let's look at Galatians 2. Not too far away. When you think about the Pauline letter directly addressed to the Judaizing issue, you can think of no letter more intense than Galatians. For this is precisely the battle royal that uh, was uh, destroying or, or, or vexing the Galatian church, and to which Paul wrote one of the most strongly worded of any of his epistles. In Galatians chapter 2, we read this. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. Now remember, Titus is a Gentile. Titus is Paul's protege. He is a pastor. He is a Gentile. In order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Look at verse 3. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Okay, it's a strange thing to kind of have on your resume. But in the first century, in the early church, this was a crucial issue because it had been the crucial issue for the Jewish people. The borderline of covenant identity was circumcision for males. And Titus is not circumcised. Now, how do they know that? Because he's Greek and the Greeks weren't circumcised. He becomes a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Is he circumcised? No, he is not. And you look at the Jerusalem council, you look at the book of Acts, you look at the intensity of that. And so you understand that the question is, okay, after that, what can an uncircumcised man do? If he doesn't have to be circumcised just to become a Christian, well, certainly when it comes to, say, the pastoral office or whatever, this would still continue to matter, right? No. No, even here, Paul in Galatians references Titus, the same Titus, and even Paul writes in a letter he wasn't required to be circumcised. So I just want you to understand this. This is the Apostle Paul. You've got to love this about the Apostle Paul uh, because... The Apostle Paul is like an attorney of great skill in a courtroom, and he presents the evidence, and he presents the evidence with an argument, and then more or less with the imperative, deal with it. So, writing to the Galatians, you realize how Paul turns the volume up 
by referencing Titus and then as if they didn't get the point, made the point that Titus, his appointed deputized pastor, is a Greek who is not circumcised. Hear him. That had to be tough, right? That had to be tough. For those who were raised in a Jewish world and who had a naturally Judaizing mentality, it had to be tough to be told, you are going to hear the word of the Lord through an uncircumcised Greek. You are going to have your doctrine corrected by an uncircumcised Greek. You are going to know as the ambassador of the gospel an uncircumcised Greek. But brothers and sisters, had that not happened the way it happened by the Holy Spirit and on apostolic authority in the early church, Christianity would have become something of a offshoot of Judaism, probably limited to areas of Jewish population in the ancient Near East. That is not the Father's intention for the church of the Son. And so all that is right here. In the opening verses to Titus, it's, it's all right here to say Titus, just to say the name, is to say, know who you're dealing with here. This is Paul as a son. Even as Timothy is his beloved son, he identifies Titus as my child. A Jewish man who identified himself as, as, as you know, in every way superlatively Jewish. It's one thing for Paul to describe Timothy as his beloved son. And remember, Paul circumcised Timothy. He made certain that Timothy was circumcised. He had a Greek father. He had not been circumcised. He's half Jewish. The big issue there is his Jewish mother. He is understood to be Jewish by the Jewish people because he was born to a Jewish mother. And so he's an uncircumcised Jew, which means unfaithful, denying and uh, obdurant and resistant to the covenant insulting to the covenant, that will not do. And so Timothy must be circumcised. Titus, not Jewish in any sense. No circumcision required whatsoever. Also referred to as his child. Just don't pass over that. This is Paul who as Saul was not only the persecutor of the church, he was a Jewish supremacist. And, and for good reasons, because the logic of Judaism was that salvation is by the law. And salvation there, not in the ultimate sense, but in the requirement of God for the purposes of God. So this represents what can only be in the Christian church. These first few verses of Galatians can only be a part of the New Testament. And you put these first four verses of Titus over against anything that comes before it in Judaism, and it is unthinkable, except it's God's plan. It also reminds us of the absolute centrality of Paul. Uh, it, it shows you in the sovereignty and providence of God how he loved his church such that he took the chief pharisaical, rabbinical, prosecutorial enemy of Christianity and makes him the apostle of the gospel so that Saul, who is now Paul, in himself represents the very claims that he is now saying 
must be let go of for the cause of the gospel. It takes a Paul to get to a Titus. And it takes a Titus to get to you and to me. And so this book written to Titus is by the Holy Spirit given to the church throughout all the ages. And I just hope that those of us who are here this morning recognize that had this not been God's purpose from the beginning as demonstrated in the ministry of the Apostle Paul and in the expansion of the gospel to the Gentiles, we wouldn't be here. And, and had the Judaizers won in the first century church, we wouldn't be here. Uh, Christianity would have been seen merely as a Jewish sect. But we are here by the grace and mercy of God. As we look at how this passage closes, notice again the gospel reiterated, powerfully proclaimed, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Grace and peace are going to appear just, just about everywhere Paul writes similarly. Grace and peace. And by the way, you say, why those two things? Well, it is because they do go together, but they are separate. It is the grace that produces the peace. It is not the peace that produces the grace. So it's not peace and grace. It's going to be grace and peace. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins... To deliver us from the present evil age. So there's a, you know, the declaration of the gospel, the substitutionary atonement of Christ dying for our sins, for our sins, to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. It's the perfect symmetry of a Trinitarian declaration. It's the Father's purpose through the Son, the Son's obedience to die in our place for our sins in order that we might have salvation. According to the will of our God and Father, then doxology, verse 5, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul will speak of Christ being glorified in the church and receiving glory, rightly so, in the church, ultimately here to the Father, whose purpose it was from before the creation of the world to redeem the elect and that they be faithful. That, by the way, is, uh, is the pastoral part to the pastoral epistles. Titus is not Paul. Titus is Titus. Titus is not an apostle. He's sent by an apostle. His task is to preach and to apply the apostolic testimony. That's the preacher's job today. That's the pastor's job today. That's exactly it. The pastors of this church are not apostles. No revelation comes through them, themselves. No new revelation. There is no first and second Greg. He would be the first to say that. The pastor's responsibility in the church age is to stand upon the prophets and the apostles upon their authority, upon the Holy Scripture, and then to teach and preach the apostolic testimony upon apostolic authority. So, in conclusion, people speak of the age of the apostles coming to an end. Yes, it did. And of the apostles dying, and yes, they did. 
and of the apostolic role disappearing. No, it didn't. No, it didn't. It's just not found in a person. It's found in the New Testament. So if you drive around certain parts of Louisville, you will see churches where they will say that their pastor is apostle this or apostle that. No. You know, without putting too fine a spin on it, nope. But then do we have no apostolic authority? To the contrary, we do. It is known as the New Testament. And it is as living an apostolic testimony as when the apostles were living. Only, I think, the apostles would insist upon saying, even more so. Well, it has been a privilege just to look at these first five verses together and uh, just to see how much gospel, church, how much Christianity is just encapsulated in something like 50 short words. It's actually a short letter, but all of it is this intense. And for that, we'll be thankful to study together. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful that you've given us the opportunity to look at these five verses by the Apostle Paul to Titus. Father, may they take root in our hearts that we might be more faithful in the church and in the world for the gospel to the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the everlasting glory of God the Father, we pray. Amen.